it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane joke. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I could, oh, okay. That was a greatest night in the history of television. Okay. So I was on an overnight flight from Los Angeles to New York when Slapgate went down at the Oscars between Will Smith and Chris Rock, which you just heard the uncensored version. And while slap could have easily been the word of the week, instead, I think the word of the week is messy. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh? Yeah. Because the incident, the fallout, the conversations, all this shit is just messy and complicated and layered and nuanced. Yes, a grown man slapping another grown man can be nuanced. Now, let me state the obvious first. It was a tasteless joke because as many later learn, Jada Pinkett Smith is suffering from traction alopecia, which is an immune disorder that attacks the hair follicles. As Chris Rock knows better than anyone, since he executive produced that terrific documentary, Bad Hair, some years ago, black women are sensitive about their hair. And in fact, in that documentary, he talked to somebody who had alopecia, a black woman. And alopecia is specifically something that black women disproportionately suffer from. In fact, about one third of women who suffer from alopecia are women of African descent. That said, you can't slap somebody over an insult, even one that is directed at your wife and definitely not at the Oscars, which is being internationally broadcast to millions of people. Both were wrong, but Will Smith was wronger. Because by hitting Chris Rock, he stooped even lower. Now, Will Smith has since apologized and the Academy announced they are considering disciplinary actions. But I give Chris Rock a ton of credit because a lot of people in that situation would have swung on Will Smith. And that shit would have gone from zero to an MMA fight in 30 seconds. As you hear from the clip that I played at the top of the podcast, Chris Rock actually stops himself from saying something even more cutthroat to Will after he got slapped and not trying to be funny. But Chris Rock can take a slap because that was not a love tap that Will gave him. Like Diddy said, Chris got a chin, man. He got a chin. Now, logically, most of us know it's just wrong to put your hands on people. But there is so much to unpack here. Let's start with Jada Pinkett Smith who a lot of men are continually in this situation casting as the villain. So many headlines 
in so many conversations have centered on blaming Jada. It was Jada's reaction that drove Will to embarrass himself on national TV. It was Jada's affair with August Alsina that has left Will in such a troubled emotional state that he has to behave this way in public. It's Jada pulling the strings and controlling Will behind the scenes. Those are the narratives. If I see a re one more man, because that's where a lot of this energy is coming from, not to absolve some women because it's coming from some of them too, but I just see a lot more men saying this. If one more man points the finger at Jada, I'm going to fucking lose it. For one, she didn't cheat on him. Will knew about the affair she was having with August Alsina. Her and Will were separated. They addressed it on Red Table Talk because August Alsina, another man, disclosed their affair and basically did a double disc album about it. Now, if y'all want to criticize Jada for being with somebody who was significantly younger, who was one of her son's friends, who was in a vulnerable state, that is fair game. But keep in mind, Will told my journalist friend Wesley Lowry in a cover piece on Will that Wesley wrote for GQ before Will's memoir was released that Jada was not the only one who was having extramarital relationships during their marriage. In his memoir, Will discusses how Jada did not believe in traditional marriage. And later on in their relationship, they made the conscious decision not to be responsible for each other's happiness. I don't know what that means. Say what you will. But I think they were talking about codependency because in will's words their marriage started to feel like a prison so whatever that means for him whatever boundaries they set it is what it is ain't none of my business will said they tell each other everything and jada is always straight up with him and unfortunately some people can't grasp the concept of people existing inside of relationships and marriages where women have the same agency as men because for some men I'm sure Jada would have been woman of the decade if this was an open relationship where Will got to do whatever he wanted to do and Jada didn't have that same privilege. And on some level, it felt good to see Will standing up for his wife, a black woman, albeit in a stupid and completely ridiculous way. Some would say a criminal way. But I don't know if this is what protection should look like. Was this Will protecting his wife or was this will protecting his ego and his pride speaking of will in his memoir he talks about how he always felt like a coward because he could never protect his mother from his abusive father such an unfair burden but i can imagine that seeing jada react the way that she did after chris rock made that joke it might have triggered something within will no excuses just context let's also see this in even broader context than that of who Will Smith has been characterized to be. Will Smith was the first rapper to win a Grammy, which he won in 1989 for Parents Just Don't Understand. He is rapping about that and brand new funk and summertime and more upbeat stuff at a time when gangster rap was exploding into the scene. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air started airing in 1990 and that helped turn Will, as we know, into a star. He was just seen as goofy, gregarious, funny but there was always this perception that he was soft he didn't quite fit into our community because he wasn't hard enough he wasn't edgy enough and in his memoir will talks about how he initially felt some jealousy toward his co-star and bad boys martin lawrence because he felt like martin was accepted in the black community in a way that he was not it's funny because Jada has been the one who's been accused of emasculating will but the truth is we as a community at least a lot of us have been emasculating Will for a long time. After this incident with Chris Rock 
unfolded, a lot of people were engaging in these very silly hypotheticals asking, would Will have rushed the stage and slapped The Rock? No, because The Rock probably wouldn't have made that joke. Or would Will have done that to Sam Jackson or Jerry Seinfeld? None of those people would have made that joke about his wife. But Chris Rock did make that joke. And deep down in the places you don't talk about at parties, some of us don't want to admit that the reason Chris Rock made that joke is because it was Will Smith. Good old laughing ass, always smiling, always joking. Welcome to Miami ass Will Smith. The Smiths as a couple have been the butt of a lot of jokes in recent years from entanglements to them being too transparent about their marriage. So what's one more joke at the Smiths expense? Chris caught the right one on the wrong day. Finally, let me add that in conversations I've seen on social media and even in a column by basketball legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, there has been this sentiment that Will Smith somehow embarrassed the race with his egregious behavior. So, no. The only person Will Smith embarrassed was Will Smith. As black people, we need to get out of this habit of thinking we should feel any kind of collective shame when one of us does something bad or untoward. Because it's giving me upholding white supremacy vibes. Because when we say that somebody is embarrassing us, we're not completing the sentence, which is embarrassing us in front of these white people. We're worried about impressing or performing or living up to expectations that white people supposedly have of us. Oh, no. Now that Will Smith has showed his ass at the Oscars, the white folks won't invite us to their pretty little award shows anymore. They won't let us into their exclusive validation circles. Listen, the white folks who think that Will Smith's behavior proves that black people are just violent animals who don't know no better. They didn't start thinking that because of Will Smith. And they won't stop thinking the worst of black people either, no matter how good we quote unquote behave. Our dignity and humanity are not conditional and we have to stop acting like it is. If good behavior prevented racism and resentment, don't you think we would have tried that shit a long time ago? As of the recording of this podcast, as I mentioned, the Academy has launched an investigation. So unfortunately, this story isn't wrapping up anytime soon. I tell you what, they bet not come for Will's Oscars. Not when Harvey Weinstein still has his Oscar and so does convicted child rapist Roman Polanski still got their Oscars. And they don't want to get into the business of trying to play the morality police with people in their Oscars. Trust me, they don't want to go down that road. But coming up later on, I got a story to tell since we're on the topic of slapping people. I'm going to tell the story about that time my husband wished he would have slapped somebody that he felt like did something disrespectful to me. The word of the week. Messy. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today was actually at the Oscars when the Will Smith Chris Rock drama went down. But. Not even such a silly spectacle could steal his joy because him performing there at an Oscars that was led by an all black production team for the first time in history. Shout out to executive producer Will Packer. It was just a great career highlight for my guest today. During the height of quarantine, a lot of people credited him with helping them get through what was an incredibly lonely time for a lot of people who had to quarantine alone or were just missing friends and family. He brought us together as a community to do something that was so simple, enjoy and listen to great music. I think his new title should be America's DJ, but he's probably the most sought after DJ in the world, at least one of them. 
if as Fat Joe says, yesterday's price is not today's price, God knows what today's price is for my guests right now. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. D nice. I am just beyond thrilled, D, that you did this podcast because I know that the last couple days have been crazy for you because we're recording this. Literally, it's been two days since the Oscars and so much happened. So I thank you so much uh, for deciding to to sit down with me because I know um, that you had a lot, obviously, going on. But before we get into the Oscars, because I have so much to ask you about that, let me start with a question I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. When did you become unbothered? Oh, my gosh, man. I've been unbothered since I was a kid. And, you know, like, you know, just as a kid growing up in the Bronx, I'm I've always felt like, why, why shouldn't I be able to do something? Like, what do you mean I can't climb this tree? Or what do you mean I can't save money to buy my first car on my own? Or like, so I've, you know, I've never worked for anyone. I've only done my own thing. And I've, I've always felt like I should be able to do whatever it was that I wanted to do in my life. And I live that way. Well, did doing everything you wanted to do in your life include one day being showcased at the Oscars? <laughs> well, why not? Why shouldn't I be on the Oscars? You know, honestly, like I felt like years ago, it's funny. I moved out to Los Angeles because I wanted to break into film and television as a producer, not as a DJ. I moved here three years ago because I wanted to produce documentaries. And when I started getting the calls, obviously because of club quarantine, but not even just because of that, because of my history, I've had a history of doing great things. When I started getting calls from the Emmys to perform or, or Grammys or Super Bowl. And then when I got the Oscar call, it was like, it all makes sense to me. Why? Because none of this would have happened had I lived in New York. You know, like I just followed this journey and, and I've been free with it. And, and, and yeah, so why shouldn't I be there? You know? So what did it feel like when you did get that call that they wanted you to perform at the Oscars? So the first call I received was probably around five months ago from um, the COO of the Academy that she asked if I would play the governor's ball. And that was exciting. I was like, you know, I was happy about that because the only time that I had been to the Academy Awards was when Common won. And I went with Common. I wasn't even in the theater when he won. I was just in the dressing room chilling with him. And then we went to the governor's ball and I saw how beautiful it was. And, and, and immediately I thought like, man, I want to do this one day. Then I found out some friends were doing it. Some of my fellow DJs. If I knew someone had a gig, I would never ask. I don't, I don't believe in like blocking someone else's blessings. And um, when she called and asked me to, um, to play, the first thing I said was like, hey, that belongs to. And she was like, no, this year belongs to you. This is for you. Like you did this. And that was beautiful. And then um, roughly around two months ago, I got a call from Will Packer. Um, you know, as soon as he locked in the deal, you know, one of the first people he called was me to say, hey, what are you doing on this date? I'm producing the Academy Awards and I need you on the show. I was, my mind was completely blown away, but excited and not just excited for me, but excited for like every young black DJ that may feel like you just have to stick to one genre or, or be one type of DJ. Like, no, we love people. We love music. We share music. And that love of music has taken me everywhere. 
And just to explain to people, the governor's ball is like the party, okay, um, with the Oscars. So it's it's very prestigious in, in its own right. Um, now, you have played plenty of big gigs before. I mean, Obama's inauguration. I mean, you have done a lot of different events. But what is your approach when you're going into something like the Oscars? Because of what happened with um, club quarantine, my approach is different than it would have been three years ago. Well, two years ago. How so? Because two years ago, I, I didn't know myself musically. You know, like I, I would play what I thought people wanted to hear. You know, like I would play what, what I believed that they wanted to hear at a party. I wasn't 100% who I am. And it wasn't until, you know, I started this virtual party where there was no one in a room with me. And I had to just play what I loved. And what I loved actually mattered to people. And it introduced people to new music. And it introduced people to classics that they never heard or to some people it, were, it was very nostalgic the way I would play these older songs and mix it in with new records. I wouldn't have done that at the, at the uh, governor's ball or right? even at the Academy Awards. I wouldn't have done that had I not found my love of music and my space with it and, and the freedom to play what I love. You know, that, that wouldn't have happened. So two years ago, I would have played what people, what I thought they wanted to hear this time when I was playing music and people were walking out and, you know, Dune one, I was playing Earth, Wind and Fire's Fantasy. Like if you if you get it, you get it. You know what I mean? Like I was playing records like that, like when the winners came out and, you know, they've never really seen anything like at, at the Academy Awards. You know, like I, I read a I read on a blog earlier this morning. Oh, my gosh. The Academy played Africa when Daniel and her walked out. And to me, it was my, they didn't realize that it was a black person that actually selected that song. I played Africa because I was celebrating black culture. I, I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm uh, just curious, what did you uh, play when Will Smith won? <laughs> oh, well, by that point, I wasn't, um, I only did music direction for the first. First part. Okay, that's right. Because um, I was on. Yeah, it was like me, the first album, then Sheila E and Travis Parker. And, uh, Got you. And then they had like the traditional orchestra at the end. Yeah, because I uh, I was on a plane to New York when the Oscars were going on, but I, I recorded it at home. And so I still haven't seen the show in its, in its entirety yet. Now, when you heard who else was going to be joining you in this experience, you mentioned Travis Barker and, and Sheila E. What was sort of your response to that? Or what was your reaction? I thought it was brilliant the way that Will Packer kind of put this together. He wanted we wanted the show to be fresh and, and to be inclusive of everyone and not just all people, but even even like movies and genres of music and like the experience, you know. So DJs are on fire right now. And the one DJ that kind of like, I mean, not patting myself on the back, but I am one of the people who throughout the last two years provided entertainment for the world. You know, when we couldn't party, we party with me. So the fact that they incorporated that experience into it was beautiful. The fact that they incorporated, they put together a band that it was very inclusive of like Latina and like Travis Barker and, and, and Adam, you know, you know, music director out of Philly, you know, like it was just dope. And then to be respectful of what the tradition of the Academy Awards is to be able to have like that orchestra in that last hour so it can still kind of like have that feeling. I thought it was just I thought it was beautiful outside. You know, I know a lot of people are talking about what happened with the incident. I love both of them and, it, you know, sad to see, but the show itself was beautiful. I thought Will and, and Shayla did an amazing job and, and uh, you know, it, it's a little sad that 
you know, things turn out the way that it did, but it shouldn't take away from how beautiful the experience was. Well, I was going to um, ask you, like as somebody where this is a new experience for you, did you feel any resentment is the best word that I can put up with because that uh, incident between Will Smith and Chris Rock has kind of overtaken, as you said, what was a wonderfully produced and in many ways so historic. I mean, here you have a, a black woman being the first black woman to produce the Oscars. You have an all black production team. You have you there also representing the, the culture, like the representation for black people, period, was insane for this Oscars. So do you feel as somebody who participated in it that that moment overshadowed everything else that was so good about this Oscars? I think just for like the last two days, it overshadowed it because of what happened. But Honestly, like in my heart, I feel like people saw how beautiful it was, you know, and I mean, from the intro, the Beyonce intro, you know, shooting that and, you know, filming that live in Compton, like, like things like that was just beautiful. Like, so people obviously want to like gravitate towards what they feel is negative. Me, those hours of sitting there and watching Will and those guys go to work, like I watched it come to life. I was at rehearsal the night before for like four hours. The morning of, we were up at like nine o'clock in the morning rehearsing, like full show run through and to see it all come together. Like it was it, it was beautiful. And I, I really do hope that people take that away from it and not about the incident. You know, like the incident like that happened, like, you know, it's unfortunate. But the amount of hard work that was put into that, I mean, even to song selection, like even selecting songs for that one hour. I can't even imagine what the orchestra had to go through. You literally had to have a song for every category, but also for every winner, because the, the spirit of the movie was different. You know, the power of the dog was different than than Doom. You know what I mean? Like, so it was like to see what was going on behind the scenes and what they put into that show was beautiful. So and I, I really do hope people take that away from it. So did you know who was going to win or did you? No, you didn't. OK, so you so off the in your preparation, are you doing this where you're just like, okay, if Dune wins, I'm playing this. If, if such and such wins. Exactly. Okay. That's the way it worked. Okay. The, the way it worked was for each category, if there were five nominees, I had to have five different song selections based on what the feeling and the spirit of that movie was. And yeah, that's why I said the experience was, was just a very unique one. One I'll never forget because it really took a lot of, look, when the power of the dog was coming, when, you know, I was, I was really trying to play, George Clinton, Atomic Dog. Like, I was trying to get Atomic Dog in there. <laughs> like, you know, just kind of like throwing some like subtle love to like, you know, the people out there. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we couldn't get that record through. I was like, come on now, I need that. If they win, I want that to happen. But no, it was, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful experience. So now, what was your Oscars night like? Okay, so you go to the Governor's Ball, you're doing that. Like, how long were you out? <laughs> out and up? <laughs> I got some rest. No, what am I talking about? I didn't even rest Saturday night. I was supposed to rest Saturday night, but the Roots and their team asked me to attend the Roots party. And that was a big party for them. It was like the Roots Oscar event. And we all kind of felt like um, we were hoping that Amir would win. So, I, you know, I went out and I didn't, you know, made a little guest appearance and I returned home or to my hotel at like about 3 a.m. And then I got up at 8 a.m. And then we worked from, we rehearsed and then the show started. We did the show. 
Then I immediately played the Gov Ball. And then I played um, Vanity Fair. I went and played at the Vanity Fair party. Oh, you did both. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, no, no, no. I had the Vanity Fair party. And then once I played Vanity Fair, I went over to a Guy series party. And I played there as well. Um, Guy and Madonna has like this legendary Oscar night party that they do. So I was, I was, um, I was pretty much up for almost 24 hours. So how did you make, make, yeah, I mean, I guess club quarantine kind of prepared you for this considering how long you spent DJing at some moments, um, uh, during, uh, club CQ. So I was like, how did you stamina wise? <laughs> how did you do it? <laughs> I was good. You know, I, I really didn't eat much. You know, I nibbled on crackers all day and, you know, um, I mean, just imagine, you know, what am I supposed to do? Like I can't take breaks during the Academy Awards and you're, not only was I playing that first hour, but I also played every commercial break, you know, leading into commercials. So, um, but no, I was, I was running off of adrenaline, you know, and just really excited about doing something that my peers, my contemporaries from my generation have never really done. You know, like there are only a few of us who, that are still here doing what we love. You know, you know, I started in 1985, 86 was the first record came out. I don't know too many people in hip hop that are, you know, from 86 that are still doing what they love other than, you know, Latifah. I think she came out like 88, but still Queen Latifah to Will, Ice-T. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a long list. Um, that's for sure. To be included in that list right now is, is incredible. It's an honor, you know, from the amount of love and support that I received. Well, I know that so many people often tell you about how you got them through quarantine when we were in the thick of the lockdown and obviously unable to socialize, unable to go anywhere. You know, let's go through the origin story of club quarantine. Like what inspired you to start it? Well, I was inspired by, by people, by um, the amount of people um, in my industry, especially that were losing jobs, you know, and I, I was sitting back and I had to, can't even imagine what other people were feeling like I had to I was booked for tons of gigs, you know, Essence Festival to, you know, South by Southwest. And I had 10 dates on Jill Scott's tour. It was to me like 2020 was supposed to be that year of like elevating my career of not just become not being like a club DJ. I mean, I, even though I was more than a club DJ, obviously I was doing the Obamas and Super Bowl. And, but I wanted to be like mainstream show DJ, like. You're coming to see me at an amphitheater. Like, that's what I wanted to do as someone's opening that. And, you know, so Jill Scott and Live Nation Urban were kind enough to give me 10 dates on her tour. I was excited about that. And then the world stopped, you know, like the world stopped and we were losing gigs. And, and I was extremely sad, you know, like you can't even imagine what other people were feeling. You know, like I I knew that I was OK, like I would have been able to survive, you know, a couple of years. You know, I invested well and. If I didn't make money, I can just pull from from an investment. But like it was rough knowing what people were going through. And, you know, when I started playing um, this homeschool party, it wasn't called Club Quarantine. It was called Homeschool initially. It was just about me doing exactly what I'm doing right now, just having conversations and like playing music and tell people about the origins of a song that I may have worked on. And I just kept watching people come in and like it, it was just interesting, like, wow. All right, people want to hear what I have to say. And I started playing more music and then I started DJing and that's when it kind of took off. And part of the reason why it kept, I kept it going was because I saw early on that 
all of my friends, like friends that I hadn't seen in a long time. Like we may have been in the same club, but I could see them from afar. Like the same way I saw you from afar the other night at, at you know, at a, at a pre-Oscar event. I would see my friends, but I was never able to like actually converse with them, you know, because I was working. Here we are, we're locked down and we're all in my IG, we're all in this virtual chat in the IG live and I'm playing music and it kind of felt like old times, like when I first started. So that, that just gave me so much like, like, you know, I just wanted to play more music. I wanted to keep going because it, it was just fun to see my friend Chuck Bone. And um, I saw what was happening. And I, I was reading the comments and, and, you know, I knew that what I was doing mattered to people, which is why I never, I don't put up a cash app, no disrespect to anyone that does. I just knew that in, in this space, it should have been about me providing like, just a space for people to come and hang out, you know, and like listen to music with their families. And uh, when that thing blew up, and it, you know, it was something special because I knew that it had nothing to do with a brand. It had nothing to do with me selling you something. It actually just blew up because it was all based on love and it was based on people wanting to feel connected to each other. And I'm so glad that I made every decision that I did to, to keep going, to play for nine hours, to, you know, thinking about people in different time zones, you know, like I just did that because one, I was home, two, I love music, three, I love community, and, and four, it was just fun. Like the comments were fun, you know, and I, I try not to get on as much now, obviously the world has opened up and people are busy. So, you know, I'll try to get on every now and then, but like reading the comments are, were, it was just one of the highlights for me to actually just read what people were saying and how inspired they felt. And not only that, I mean, it, it is interesting just how it just ballooned to the point where, at least in my group text and with people, um, my friends, like when you were on their text to me, like, hey, you jumping in right now? Cause you know, D spinning right now. I was like, oh, say no more. Like I'll, I'll be there, I'll be at the party. Uh, save me a spot in the VIP. And then it uh, really became huge because suddenly you have politicians dropping in there. You know, you have Bernie Sanders dropping in there and Biden and, and Vice President Kamala Harris. Like all of a sudden it becomes um, the place you have to be if you want to connect with other people. Now, how did that make you feel once you saw political candidates dropping in there? <laughs> well, so it's, it's interesting about that, you know, like that. You know, they weren't dropping in because they heard about this D nice party. You know, a lot of them dropped in because I was I was making a phone call. So that was a very important moment for me as well. You know, when I saw what was happening, um, I saw this shift happening with with social media and in particular with my IG live. I someone had posted, um, "Hey, D nice got everybody in here." Like this was like the night before the big night when no politicians were in, and you know, they, you know, Drake was in there and Rock was in there. And I don't hang out with Drake and I don't hang out with The Rock. And I actually never even met The Rock in person. Now, I, you know, a DM or, you know, a message, a comment or whatever, but I've never met the guy. So I'm like, damn, he knows about what's going on. Like, that's pretty cool. And this was day four. But one comment stood out and, and it was a woman that said, hey, D-Nice has everyone in here. The only people that are missing are the Obamas. And when I woke up the next morning, I received so many offers for sponsorship. Like, hey, can you put this in there? And, and I turned everyone down because I felt like this was something special. And I made a couple of phone calls. I started calling, 
you know, assistance. And I was like, hey, listen, I got this party. Like, it's a little weird. It's on the phone, but it does feel real. It feels real. And, um, you, you know, you should ask this person to come in. And, you know, no one could guarantee anything. Like, oh, I've been in there. Like, it's so dope. But I don't think that this person is going to come in. And, you know, at the end of one of the calls, you know, she, um, she said, hey, I can't promise you anything, but I'll see, I'll see if Michelle could stop in. And I was like, all right, cool. That's all I could, that's all I could ask for. Yeah, and Michelle we, is in Michelle yeah, Obama. Michelle Obama. <laughs> the slowest, forever first lady. And, uh, you know, when she popped in, at the time, I couldn't see her name. All I saw was like comments flying. Oh my gosh. Wow, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Like. You see the comment. I saw the comments flying and, and I, I realized not not only the importance of like that moment, but like the importance of like being kind to people or or just pouring into other people for decades. And when you when you when you need them, people will come through. And like that's that's that was probably the biggest lesson that I learned from that outside of it, you know, catapulting like CQ to uh next level it was more about man you do things for people and um you never think to even ask for something in return and the moment that i asked for something in return it was really about inspiring other people it wasn't something for me it wasn't like uh i mean it was honestly i i think um for me what struck me about it other than the great music was we don't do a whole lot in this country together that sense of community has really been lost. And especially during that time, that's really divided. We're under you know, the pressure of this pandemic. And it was one of the few times during that entire quarantine where we actually came together. And you just don't have those moments. They're, they're rare now. And I think I, I, um, I've watched a video, um, a interview that you did where you talked about sort of the power of music. So, you know, talk about that part a little bit is that, you know, how is it, how music is able to build this community that you love being a part of? Yeah, with, with the music, um, you know, it hit me when uh, one of my friends is another DJ, DJ Envy out of New York City, The Breakfast Club. He called one day while, that same weekend while I was playing music and he called me and said, man, I just want to thank you because this is the first time that I'm, I'm able to like dance at home with my family and listen to music. And it's because of what you're playing. You know, you think about it, a lot of us were playing hip hop and hip hop that we didn't want to play for like the average five-year-old that was home, you know, like not, not really playing Cardi B, you know, as much as we love to hear it, you're not really playing that at home for your kids. Or, you know, um, and, and no disrespect to Cardi B, but it's more about the music and the, the spirit of the music, you know, it's more like being in parties. In your home with your family, you want you want music that will reflect that kind of love that you want to you know you want in your house. You want to dance with your kid. Um, to be someone that was able to play music that way, the way that I actually listened to music at home, uh, it was it was special, you know. And the music directly um, reflected what a lot of us were feeling. A lot of us needed love. We still, you know, there's nothing like listening to a Stevie Wonder record, you know. When all I do is think of you, you're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and you're thinking about the world and you play the song that just, just even sonically, it just moves your spirit. It warms your heart. You know, a lot of music that's being made today, not to make a blanket statement, but a lot of the popular music that's, that's out right now, 
doesn't really reflect that spirit. It's more like it's party lifestyle. Well, when the world stopped, no one cares about what car you're driving. No one cares about how many bottles you're popping in the club. No one cares about that, how much money you're throwing around in a strip club. Like that didn't matter. What mattered was we were all doing the same exact thing. We were stuck at home. Some people were stuck at home with people that they didn't even like anymore. Or some people were stuck at home with people they were in abusive relationships with. You know, some people had, this was their first time being at home together with all of their kids. And, you know, because they work multiple jobs, usually they're home and their kids are, you know, at school or they're at work. And one parent is home, one parent is at work. And then it's in reverse. Like, this was the first time that we all had to, like, sit still. And so the music that I selected was music that I felt like would inspire people, would make you want to get up and dance together while you're cooking to take your mind away from that abusive relationship. Or, you know, like, that, that's what I was trying to do, you know. And, and the music was powerful and the song selection was powerful. You know, like, I mean, I played Kathy Sledge thinking of you every day because that's just how I felt, you know, like the, the chords and the guitar that now Rogers was playing on that song felt like it was speaking to my heart. And obviously it was speaking to everyone's heart. Like we all listen to that song. And, um, you know, that's just the power of music. You know, one of the, the, the other things I think that came out of, of Club Quarantine was, you know, not just the community, but I, I do think for a lot of us that sometimes don't listen to music the way that you play it, you know, it was sort of a return to that because listening to it as more of an emotional experience as opposed to, like you said, just to, oh, I'm gonna put on this song before I, you know, as I'm pre-gaming, going to the club, I'm gonna play, you know, constantly kind of emotion. So I think even the way you played it allowed us to slow down and appreciate timeless music that we, I think that we always had appreciated, but maybe lost a little bit uh, of that um, appreciation. Now, I imagine you probably, as you mentioned, there were sponsors hitting you up and you look at, and this is, I'm I'm not in any way making any judgment on how Versus then became associated with Triller, but I imagine you had opportunities to maybe do the same thing with Club Quarantine, you know, either sell it or monetize it and however you want to put it. Why did you decide to not take that step? Because it seems like you were very intentional with trying to keep it as pure as possible. Yeah, because I mean, and I love, by the way, I love what Versus did. I felt like that was something that was important. You know, we, not that we built Instagram, you know, Instagram existed, but we kind of popularized it like during a dark time, you know, like, you know, not many people are using IG Live, you know, and, and people started using that more. That wasn't my mission. My mission was different. My mission was about people. My mission, and not to say that that wasn't theirs. It was just different. Our approach was different. We both, I feel like we all kind of like came together and kept people inspired during a dark time. With their, with what they built, it's so beautiful that um, to see how they built this company that, this business that wasn't just based on Tim in uh, Swiss, they brought everyone along and gave everyone a piece of it. And I think that that is actually beautiful to see Black people coming together people of color coming together and doing something so powerful and, and creating that movement and, you know, taking it over the trailer. For me, you know, like this, that's not what, 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 what inspired me. What, what kept me going, just think about it like this. As much as people think that me playing music was also, was, all, was about, you know, just keeping people inspired. The conversation kept me inspired as well. 
the people kept me inspired as well. So to take that away from the people to then turn it into something where, you know, it could be a subscription or like that just didn't feel fair. You know, like for club quarantine, for versus cool, that makes sense for them. But for CQ, for for what people were feeling, I couldn't I couldn't do that to them. I'll create something else. You know, like if God gave me the ability to come up with this idea, I can I'll come up with something else and and it'll be great. You know, like I believe in that. But for this, this was important for it to be about the people, which is why I still I still go on. You know, like when I was walking to hair and makeup at the just before the Academy Awards started and, you know, like this, this Asian woman was escorting me to to a hair and makeup. And then she stopped midway and said, like, I listen to you every day. And then she gave me this hug and I could hear like, you know, I can hear the sniffles happening like she was tearing up and, and she was just thanking me for for just being there. She felt like I was there for her every single day. There, You can't put a value on that. You know, like you can't put a dollar amount on that, like that. You're doing things that save people's lives. That's what CQ was about. It was about saving lives. In the same way that the music was saving their lives, the people were saving mine, you know, like it kept me inspired. So, no, I, w- I wouldn't have done it. Mm. Uh, well, there is so much more I want to talk to you about. Definitely want to go back a little bit to your BDP days uh, because I have so many questions from that era as you uh, represent kind of, a, you know, a collection of legends that a lot of us grew up watching and, and listening to. Uh, so I want to get into that and uh, get into some other uh, DJ talk, but. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with D-Nice. During Word of the Week, I made a promise, so let me deliver on that. I got a story to tell about that time my husband almost slapped somebody in defense of me. Now, after the Will Smith stuff went down, my husband and I had a great conversation that night about how he would have handled a situation like Will Smith was in with Chris Rock if a man insulted me right in front of him. Now, this is not some far reaching hypothetical. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but my opinions and commentary tend to generate a lot of strong reaction. Some of that reaction is very hate filled. I've received death threats over social media. The FBI has contacted me a couple times to let me know about credible threats against my life. So we both live with the possibility that at any moment, somebody could jump stupid. But let this be a word of advice. Run up, you get done up. That's the way we used to do it back in my day. And trust me, my husband is still on that. But this Will Smith, Chris Rock fiasco reminded me of this time. My husband and I attended a party. I can't remember exactly where we were. I feel like we were in New York, but we were leaving this party and a fan, a man came rushing up to me because he recognized me. He dapped up my husband and acknowledged him first, which I appreciated because a lot of people will come up to me and kind of treat my husband like he's invisible. I also think it's interesting that sometimes when male fans approach me, they sort of look at my husband for permission to talk to me. It's amusing. Also a little weird. My husband is not my overseer. I get it. I know they're just trying to be respectful. Anyway, me and this man chit-chatted about sports for a minute, and then he asked me if he could take a picture with me. There was nothing about this interaction that was any different from the hundreds of times I'd done it before. I got no kind of vibes. I took the picture. He thanked me, thanked my husband for 
some reason. And then me and my husband piled into our Uber with some of our other friends who were there at the event with us. It was the summer and the weather was nice. So we had our windows down. And I noticed that the fan that we took the photo with was still sanding in the same spot which was pretty close to our car. He happened to look in my direction just as I was looking at him. And when he realized I was looking at him, he put two fingers up to his mouth and then stuck his tongue between them and flicked his tongue up and down. Y'all know exactly what he was trying to communicate with that. I was so stunned. I gasped like clutches pearls. My husband asked me what happened. And I said to him, that dude I just took a picture with is flicking his tongue out at me. And by the look on my face, my husband knew how he meant it. Now, at this point, our car hadn't taken off yet because there was traffic. And judging by the look on my husband's face in that moment, I could tell he was contemplating, seriously contemplating, jumping out of the car and beating the fuck out of this dude. I believe, in fact, my husband even yelled out the window, what the fuck did you just say? Thankfully, at that moment, the car did pull off because had it stayed a second longer, I'm telling you, he would have jumped out. Now, we talked about it in the car. And of course, I noticed my husband kept saying that he should have jumped out the car. This happened a couple years ago when we were just boyfriend and girlfriend. But every now and again, he will still bring that incident up and mention that he should have jumped out of the car. My husband has said to me many times that the things he most often regrets is when he didn't handle something the way that he should have, often as it relates to confrontation, not necessarily physical confrontation. I wonder if this is what was running through Will Smith's mind, too. Again, certainly not an excuse for his behavior, but maybe he didn't want to live with that feeling of not doing anything. Now, I, for one, am glad my husband did not jump out the car because if he jumps out, then I got to jump out, too. And I'm going to be honest, y'all. I'm too rich to fight anymore. And now back to more with D-Nice. I'm so curious about this, D. How expansive is your music collection? Like, how many, how much music do you have? I've actually never calculated, but I, even just on one laptop, I have probably around 70,000 songs, different versions. Wow. And you know, like, if you open up your iTunes and it'll tell you, like, you can listen to this, to your entire catalog for a certain amount of days. I think mine was like, it, it, it was like almost like two years without listening to like the same song. Like my computer is like eight terabytes of like on the hard drive. So there's a lot of space. And and the only thing I have on here is like music. That's it. It's funny because I read that when you're at home, though, you and it's, you know, just you and it's it's your personal time. You listen to talk radio more than you listen to music. Why? I listen to music all day. (laughs) You need a break. (laughs) Yes, I need a break. And I I actually enjoy interviews and and, uh, and then the most random talk shows, though, you know, it'll be like. I'll listen to Howard Stern because I love his interviews. Then I'll listen to like All Things Considered. Then I'll listen to different podcasts. You know, I'll do some audio books. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's pretty much what my life. Now I'm like over here, like my friend sent me this book. And it's like all of these stories, like chicken noodle soup for the soul. So this is the latest book that I just started reading because I start, I just like reading random things. Uh, Clearly, it's not random. It sold like 8 million copies. I guess. Yeah, I was like, that's a pretty well-known, <laughs> a well-known book. But no, I, mean, I don't I don't ever want to feel burnt. Like when you're not in the music industry and you go out to a club or you turn on the radio in your car, you feel good. You're like, oh, my gosh, I haven't heard this in a minute. As a DJ, I'm always playing these songs. So I don't want to feel burnt out. So when I'm home, I got to do anything else other than listen to music. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I, I notice not just you, but MC Light and before he passed, Biz Marquis. It seemed like there was this movement of people that came from a certain era in hip hop were gravitating toward DJing. Um, what was it that made you make the turn into doing this as opposed to having the front facing career that you had earlier in your career as a rapper? Well, I was a DJ before. I was KRS-One's DJ after, after Scott Rock passed. I wasn't really a club DJ, but I was his DJ touring. Then I put on my own records. And, and then, um, you know, a decade later, I returned to the scene as a DJ because I was inspired by Q-Tip. I was inspired by Q-Tip and, and Mark Ronson. They had like this party in New York City. And I went to see them play. And, man, I just couldn't believe that they were able to play the amount of music that they were dropping. You know, like I wasn't really a club person then, but I was trying to find myself again in tip and like in biz, you know, like they would always just play music. And I'm like, man, I should be, this is where I want my life to go. Like I want to, I want to really get back into the business. I didn't want to rap ever again. I just wanted to be a DJ and it was tough, you know, like coming back, you know, into that, onto the scene as a DJ, when people are like, they weren't even letting me in the clubs. Now, now, now I want to DJ your party. I'm like, you know, but the first person Q-Tip inspired me. Biz used to give me the talks about whenever you go into different cities, you got to respect their music. Like he would always tell me these things. Like you got to be who you are. You got to respect their music and every, you know, it's like, yo, remember when, when we had, when you had South Bronx out and I had, a, had make the music with your mouth, Biz, those are regional hits. You got to go into everyone's town and find that regional hit so they feel like you included them in their set. So Biz, Biz was very instrumental in me, like understanding how to play for everyone. Q-Tip was the one that I, I would stand in front of him at, a, at his parties and watch, watch Tip just play this music and Mark Ronson. So, uh, and then when I started to like kind of bubble a little bit in New York, like, like very little, it was because they asked me to play a night that they couldn't do their party. They asked me to, to, to fill in for them. And their manager named Damon DeGraff, he was managing them at the time and said, he heard me play my own party. But when I started playing their party that night, I tried to play the way they, that they, the way that they would play, you know, deep James Brown. Even though I love James Brown, I love to incorporate James. I would never play a full James set because I like mixing everything up. My vibe was more about the eighties. Like, Team Marie, like Rick James, like that was just my love. And the dude, their manager came in and was like, man, why don't you play the way that you play? And the moment I started playing, I'm, I'm not even making this up. When I was trying to emulate what they were doing, people weren't really dancing. People were standing around. And the moment that I played the way that I hear music, the whole room went crazy and they were dancing and partying. And I think that that was the first lesson of like, yo, just be yourself. Learn to be yourself, man. What was some of the challenges that you faced as you built your reputation as a DJ? You know, once you, you fully made that turn after, as you said, Q-Tip inspiring you. There were quite a few challenges. One, being an older DJ, you know, at the time, you know, I was trying to make my name on the scene. At that point, I was like 35, you know, like what average 25-year-old wants to party with 35-year-old, you know, like back then. Um, also, you know, having the, the old school hip hop stigma attached to my name, like, no, you can't play this, this popular club because you're old school hip hop. And most people thought that all I was going to do was to go in there and just play old school hip hop. I just wanted to play everything. Um, 
being an African-American um, and wanting the same budgets that non-African-Americans were getting, that was another challenge. You know, like that was a major challenge for me because I also felt like, you know, if, if, if someone like myself, even though I wasn't really popular then as a DJ and I wasn't popular as a rapper because at that point it was like, damn, then 15 years had passed since I had made a record. I just felt like, yo, you got You should ask for whatever it was that you wanted. And slowly but surely I started, get, started to get these things. You know, I felt like ageism was real in this business. And look at me now, 51 years old and eight year olds are dressed like me for Halloween, you know, like, yeah, but they were real challenges. And now that I kind of like, like I already like jumped over the hurdles. I've already done these things and I'm seeing, obviously I'm seeing success and I'm playing big arenas and I'm playing. It was a lot of hard work. And, uh, and it was all about trying to inspire the next generation, you know, like when taking it back to MC light, MC light became a DJ because I, I called her and told her she should DJ. It's like, Rapping is going to take you so far and there's only but so many old school shows, even though Light was already doing her thing and, you know, she was doing her voiceover work. And it, but I was like, there's something magical about DJing and especially about seeing women DJs that are really good, that know the music, like your MC Light, you know. Um, so to see how far she's come with her DJing is incredible. You know that I inspired her the same way Biz inspired me and Q-Tip inspired me. Paying it forward. Well, she also credits Biz, too, for telling her the same thing that you did, that, hey, you really should think about making this turn. Is this something, though, that you expect that other hip hop artists or former hip hop artists, like once they've left or that part of their careers? I mean, do you see this being kind of the next wave? No, I think the next wave should just be whatever it is that you love doing. Just be unafraid to do it and to, you know, put hard work into it. So. You know, you could be a hip hop artist and now you just want to invest in NFTs. Just be great at it. You know, be focused. You know, not everyone should DJ. I just DJ because I really do love music. Music has been my life since I was like 13 years old. I love it. And I love DJing. I, I mean, I when I had my, my CQ second anniversary party here in my home, I brought all of my gear. I have a studio here, like a streaming studio. I took everything out. We built a DJ booth in the living room because I wanted to invite some friends over. And that's all I wanted to do. Invite some friends over, celebrate the second anniversary. And when I put the gear back into my studio, I never hooked it up because I knew that I needed a break. And if I had that gear hooked up right now, I would probably be, be DJing right now. That's how much I love playing music. And I love just community, which I'll probably go hook it up right now. <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning. I was like, I really want to play some music. It's been like two weeks now. <laughs> well, I, you know, you did something quite unusual. I mean, you experienced success as an actual artist and then you left. Then you left hip hop alone. I didn't leave hip hop alone. Hip hop left me. Alone. Well, you didn't leave hip hop music alone, but you left the industry. Let me be clear. The industry left me alone. You know, like I couldn't I couldn't get a deal. I was considered old school, you know, like hip hop then was. It wasn't necessarily in its infancy, but it was kind of like, it's not where it is now, you know? So it was very disposable back then. You know, if you didn't have a record out in two years, your career was pretty much over. You know, now Nas can put a record out every three years if he wanted to. He doesn't need every, any, I mean, Jay can put an album out whenever. Then it was, you know, record companies didn't believe in you. Now guys own their labels. Now you can put music out whenever you want to. Um, and also we didn't make, the amount of money 
uh, that people make now. So, you know, to not have a record out meant that you weren't you weren't able to eat to, to survive. And, you know, like after two years of not being able to find a deal like that, yeah, depression, you can, you know, not to, you know, take this lightly, you know, people that have really dealt with depression, but I, I felt it coming on of like having that sadness and, and trying to um, figure out what's next in life. You know, like you've made music like all of your life and then, then that thing is taken away from you. The one thing that you love the most, it's like, all right, well, what do you do when people stop clapping? And it took, it took quite a few years for me to figure it out. You know, I, I never wanted to, I never had the desire to work for anyone. I've always wanted to just own my own thing. Like that was, that was my mission. And it took a few years to get to that point, but I ended up starting a creative services agency. Um, while I was a part of another one called Trendsetters and another one called Boom Digital. And then when I was finally able to just go on my own, I started a web development kind of creative services agency um, called United Camps. And you know, I was responsible for building websites like the Alicia Keys, Diary of Alicia Keys, you know, I mean, Voice to Men, Annie Lennox, Luther Vandross. I worked with AT&T. I did online marketing for Reebok with the G-Unit shoe and, and, and Violator Records. And, you know, I mean, I had a, an open contract with like most of the record companies from Arista to J Records and Motown. And I was building all of these, these websites and doing online marketing for them. And, and that's why I was able to, to uh, how I was able to survive, like, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s before jumping into DJing. Uh, so I, I guess in a way, I'm, I guess I'm sort of surprised because it wasn't like you weren't successful as a solo artist. You were. So was it just that the industry, did they just not understand that, you know, where the wave of hip hop was going? Like, I guess I could see if you weren't successful, like maybe why the industry wouldn't. But I guess I'm surprised because you you were successful as a solo artist. So the, the idea of you going around having to look for a deal is like, really? Why? Well, the music has shifted also. You know, like I came out in the 80s. So even though I was young, you know, at the time when I was considered old school, I was like 24 years old. I started when I was like 15. So the music shifted. It was no longer the black power. And then the kind of like, you know, I came up with KRS, obviously, and black power. That was the music that we made together. And as a solo artist, I kind of focused more on my age group. You know, I was, I was 19, you know, like who, what 19 year old isn't out there chasing chasing girls at the time, you know, and having fun. So my music kind of reflected something different. So it wasn't what KRS was making. And um, then, you know, 92 was the shift when, you know, Dre and everything became more, more West Coast kind of vibe. And then Puff and those guys came out and it was very glamorous. Yeah, people were kind of moving towards, not to say that the fans were, record companies were leaning towards all right we need to find that everyone was on what's new what's new what's new and um and for the record company that i was signed with you know they had krs one you know you had a choice to keep d nice or krs one you don't work with krs one like, let's be real i understood exactly what it was so you know when my deal was up they also didn't want to well my deal technically wasn't up they just kept me on the on the label until I delivered records, but they also didn't give me a budget, so I couldn't deliver anything. So it was like being trapped. I was like in purgatory, you know, like music purgatory. I couldn't do anything, you know, and um, 
but it was the best thing for my life because I would probably still be shopping a demo right now. You know, I would probably have still been focused on being that kind of artist as opposed to being who I became. I found, I found creativity in building websites, you know, and I found creativity in, in programming and learning HTML and C++ and PHP. And like, I, I found creativity in that. And then when I came back on the scene as a DJ, DJ and photographer, it was because I could afford to buy these things. I could afford to buy the tools that I needed. Like, oh, if I'm going to, oh, I'm going to shoot with Leica cameras. The average person didn't know how much a Leica camera costs, but I was like, I want that. That's what I enjoy shooting with. I'm going to buy that. And um, so had it not, and that's why I don't, I have no regrets, you know, because my life could have been totally different had I stayed on the path of just making music. You know, I see a lot of my friends and I see where they are and, and there's no disrespect, but I, I always try to tell them, like, you know, you are you are an amazing rap artist. Your lyrics were amazing. Doesn't mean that you have to make records all the time or, you know, you can be an amazing writer, period. Why aren't you writing a screenplay? Your storytelling is incredible. Like, why aren't you putting this book out? Why aren't you writing these stories? You know, and um, hopefully I inspire someone one day to just think outside of the box and think bigger than just what it used to be and live in this moment. I, I looked it up before, um, you know, we recorded this podcast, but self-destruction is almost 35 years old, <laughs> which made me feel ancient. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> uh, you want to talk about um, a moment in hip hop that I don't think will ever be duplicated. And I guess for the younger folks listening, self-destruction, it was what uh, you, KRS-One, Public Enemy, Stetsasonic, MC Light all came together because uh, I kind of crack up to, uh, or I'm amused when people say, oh, the hip hop community, they've never been outspoken about violence. I was like, ha ha, y'all don't know. Okay, I, I'm old enough to remember not just self-destruction, but all in the same gang, okay? Same gang, come on. Man. All in the same gang, right? But at any rate, going back to the release of, of that record, you know, what do you remember about how it came together? Oh man, self-destruction was just beautiful. Um... I mean, I was young when I produced that, 17 or 18. At the end of the day, I was super young. Man, it was, a, it was an amazing experience. I remember um, our tour was 88. It came out January of 89. Our tour was in 1988. We're on this tour called the Dope Jam Tour with Eric B. and Rakim, Kumo D, Dougie Fresh, Ice-T, and Biz Marquis. That was the tour. When the tour date hit, Nassau Coliseum, um, uh, one of, the, one of the, the fans, was with his girlfriend. He was wearing a rope chain. And after, after the concert, they robbed him and killed him. That's how self-destruction happened. And it was about like black people killing each other. And it was all based on hip hop. So that was 1988. The song came out in 1989. And uh, it was like Martin Luther King weekend of 89. So, and um, yeah, when, when that happened, you know, I wasn't even supposed to be the original producer in the song. It was supposed to be the Bomb Squad, which was Public Enemy's, you know, Chuck D's production team, Hank Shockley and those guys. They were supposed to produce it. But I came up with the track first. I came up with the beat first. And obviously, it was KRS's thing to lead self-destruction because of um, the Stop the Violence. It's called the Stop the Violence Movement, which is based on the BDP song, Stop the Violence. And... Um, when we did the song, it was a it was a bare beat. And I remember not a lot of artists on that track was happy with the track. They were like, ah, 
but it was because in my mind I wanted to cater the track to to every artist that was on it because it was one of the first like collaborative efforts between like all of the generation of hip hop artists that was out at the time. You know, like you mentioned before, Public Enemy, Stats of Sonic, Kumo D, obviously BDP, which was Karis One, Miss Melody, and myself. Then we also had Dougie on there um, and Heavy D and Just Ice and MC Light and, you know, LL by way of writing lights, lyrics, you know, like it was like everybody just kind of came together. And after the artists laid their vocals and I went in that studio, for, I stayed in there for like two weeks. I slept in the studio for two weeks, just just crafting this record. So it feel like when every artist was on, like it belonged to them and to make it a song that you wanted to party with, but it was, it was still, it was still inspiring you and dropping knowledge. And, and it was a conscience record, but like you still wanted to dance a little bit. And man, when that record was done and when we released it and, you know, we sold nearly a million copies, not only did I, did I feel the love, but I felt the love of like, for every young kid that wanted to just get into the music business and produce, because remember, like I said earlier, KRS was BDP, even though I was contributing on, on the music side, never to his lyrics, but like musically, I was contributing to like a lot of the beats, but I never got credit for it. Um, to finally have something out that sold like almost a million copies and it had my name on there as producer was, it's like, wow, I did it. And it's kind of heartbreaking to see that we're still losing rappers to violence, you know? Yeah, in present day. I mean, as people who lived through what happened to not just Scott LaRock, but Biggie, Pac, like I thought after Biggie and Pac that we'd never have to see something like that again. And it's just kind of heartbreaking and disappointing that we still are losing rappers in, in the same way. Could you ever see a project like that coming together in present day? I mean, I could see something like that happening. I, I, per, I personally wouldn't want any involvement because then people would probably think like, oh, you're dealing with nostalgia. But I would love to see like this generation make music like that, you know, on their own. Like this is their story to tell. I don't live that story anymore. You know, like my the violence that we experience now is just way different than just black on black crime. Now we're dealing with the violence of like trying to get a loan and trying to get like a fair loan in certain communities and we're fighting that, you know, like, and we're fighting what's going on in the world right now and in, in, in Ukraine and like all of these things. And like, but like in terms of like that hip hop kind of violence, like it's not my world. I would love to be there. And like, if there was an artist that wanted to make that kind of music to just kind of like consult and say, Hey, you should be unafraid of like talking about these things that are going on. But, you know, people are making so much money, man, and and, and it's sad to, to to say that that's a lot of what's just on their minds right now, you know? Like, it's a little bit sad, you know? We need more culture. You know, we need to shine the light on the brilliance of, as much as I love Migos and I love partying with their music and I love, you know, I love Megan and a lot of the newer artists the artists that inspire me are more of the Kendrick Lamars and, you know, J Cole because their music is just a different reflection of like what's going on in hip hop and in society. And it's just something that I can relate to more. I may not, <clears throat> excuse me. I may not party with it as much because they don't really make that many party records, 
it's just make fantastic music that you want to just put that record on that entire project and just let it play. It's just brilliant. You know, I would love to see people celebrate more of that, more artists, not just, I mean, obviously they sell millions of records, but I would love to just see more artists, you know, just kind of like, we need a, you know what it is? I feel like we need a balance. For every PE back in the day, you also had Luke, you know, and it was all fun. Because I like Luke's music too, as much as I love Public Enemy, but we just had a balance and I would love to see more of a balance right now. You made a, a bit of a return to the music industry. What do you understand about the music? Because you have the, the single, uh, obviously, with Neo. And are you still working on an album? I have one song that I'm about to do with a really, really big artist. And um, and that was the artist's idea. I mean, feel free to name drop. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it's really cool because if it, you know, I don't want to say what it is until it's done, you know. Uh, okay. But, like, we've actually been working on this now for, for like, the last, like, month and a half, trying to get it done. and. You know, because we're trying to do something in Vegas together. Returning to the music has been interesting for me. It took a moment because I didn't want to return as a rap artist. And most people only knew me as a rap artist. They weren't thinking about D-Nice, the producer, or even looking at more of a more of a DJ kind of project. So it took a long time to convince people to do songs with me. And luckily for me, Neo was the one that said, all right, I'll do it. Like, let's do it. And um, we put that record out. It was like, top five R&B song. And, and now I'm focusing on this album project so we can, we can drop the next single in June. So what do you understand about the business now that you didn't understand then? Oh man, about the music business. I, I love the music business now, you know, like I love that I get to own my music, you know, I get to own my publishing, I get to own, and, and there's nothing wrong with sharing ownership with people, but like, I don't own Call Me D-Nice. I don't own self-destruction. I don't, own those records you know like at the end of the day when those records were sold someone else made three billion dollars off of it off of the company and i didn't make a dime off of it you know like so i believe like now as an adult and and i'm really inspired by this generation and the generation before the one that's out now where they were all about ownership like you know you should own your your ip you know it's it's only right you know that way i mean look at look at the bob dylan's of the world as they They've gotten older. They've been able to sell their catalog for hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, like to sell these catalogs. It was only because they own them. You know, they own their publishing. Like, and hopefully like this generation of kids or, or no, young adults, rather, I don't want to call them kids, but like, the, you know, that they understand what's going on that the music that they're making could, could potentially be timeless music and could one day be something like legacy that you can leave behind for your kids. And I feel like that's important. So now this go around with everything that I'm doing, not just with music uh, creation, but like even with with my own properties, with with my homeschool property that I'm doing now and with CQ Live. And, you know, I'm, I'm building festivals right now with CQ Live that can potentially live on way beyond me DJing where I can bring where someone else can headline it. I don't even have to be there. And it's just about having this IP that people trust, this brand that people trust and want to to um, to participate in. That's which is which is so dope. Like even my Vegas weekend that's happening Labor Day weekend. It's not even just about DJing. It's an entire weekend that's about music. It's about uh, philanthropy. You know, I have um, we have panels on on 
financial literacy and estate planning. We have panel discussions on, on mental health and wellness. We have, we have gospel on that Sunday morning with, you know, with, with Fred Hammond and Karima Trotter. And, and, you know, we're bringing another surprise guest in, and, you know, we celebrate the nineties one day. I got a pool party with all women performers, you know, with, with all women DJs, all women performers. Like I love this whole, this whole community to where we can make this an annual situation. And, and, and it doesn't even have to be revolve around me. It's about, it's about family. So I've only, I only know that or building that because of what I see this, the generation that's out now doing, you know, kids are really, these people are really building things that they love and it's all about community and giving back. So. All right, D, before I get you out of here, there's a game I play with every guest who appears on the podcast. Yeah, this is, this is where the controversy goes down. I tell every guest this is like the interview is the softball part. This is where it gets difficult. It's a game that I play with every guest called this or that. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can get with I give you two choices and you must Underlining the word must pick one. Okay, fair enough. All right, all right. Okay. So Cabernet or Pinot Noir? Cab. Cab, because I know you're a big wine guy. I'm a big wine guy. Yeah. Um, is Cab your favorite overall? No, no, no. Barolo's my favorite. Mm. <laughs> Performing at the Oscars or DJing Obama's inaugural ball? I would have to go with the the, the first black president's inaugural ball. Not just because of who they are. They're amazing people. But the inaugural ball, come on, for the first black president. <laughs> yeah, I purposely made that one tough <laughs> because of that. It was like, have you ever seen that uh, movie Head of State? Yes, I did. Chris Rock, right? So it's like, I, I can only imagine that the party was something like that <laughs> when Chris Rock is finally elected president. <laughs> the bridge is over or my philosophy? My philosophy because I did that beat. You did. I didn't know you did the My Philosophy beat. I should have known that. It's one of my favorite hip hop songs of of all time. Yes. And finally, Rakim or KRS-One? Oh, that's dirty. <laughs> I always say the dirtiest one for last. Yeah, that is actually a tough one. I would have to go with KRS-One. Okay. Yes, yes. I would go with KRS. Even though I love, I love Rakim. That's a tough one. But yeah, I'm, all, I'm a BX guy. I guess I'll be that person to ask. You don't have to list them in order. And this is just a, a bonus question. But who, who's your favorite five? And notice I said favorite five rappers, not top five rappers, because I think those are different questions. Yes, favorite five. five. Um, I love Nas. I love Jay-Z. I love Big. Um, I love Black Thought. Not that I don't love the other, but these are like my, my five. Yes. It, it goes without saying, people. So don't start adding him like, what about, what about? It's his five, okay? <laughs> it's my five that I enjoy listening to. So I love, yeah, man. Jeez, who would be that fifth one? Oh, Kendrick Lamar. I love Kendrick. Yeah, I love Kendrick. Sometimes the way I like to answer that question is thinking about if I were stranded on a desert island, the five albums I would take with me. And that usually helps me decide who my favorite five is, which always changes, right? Yeah, no, like I would literally take reasonable doubt I mean, I love Reasonable Doubt. I would definitely take Nas. Man, which Nas album? It's Nas. I mean, I love Illmatic too. Yeah. Um, Illmatic was amazing. But man, that first album, man, was incredible. Big's Life After Death. 
The second album, the double album, I would take that with me. Kendrick to Pimp a Butterfly. Now, let me rethink this because I love the roots in Black Thought, but if it was based on an album, I would probably take an Outcast album instead. Yeah, the Outcast, the double album. What was it? The Love Below. The Love Below, yeah, Speaker Box. Speaker Box, The Love Below. I would take that album. If it was based on five albums that I would take. Look at that. See, I, I love I love the thought that you put into that because I know it's everybody's favorite argument to have. It's top five. But it's like, no, it's really about your favorite five more so than I think a top five. Well, Dee, thank you so much for doing this. I know it has been a crazy last 72 hours for you. Right? <laughs> I'm so glad when you told me when, uh, before we started recording that you actually were able to get some sleep. I was so happy for you because I could only imagine what this experience has been like. All, all good memories. Though. All good memories, all good memories. And uh, shout out to my brothers, man, uh, Chris and Will. You know, I really do hope they make up. And and, um, and that's it. That's how I'll end it for me. <laughs> shout out to them. All right. Well, D is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment Fucking Unbothered. I don't know if you guys know this, but gas prices are high as hell right now. I'm, of course, being facetious because that's all everybody is talking about. But fuck it, I'm bothered because some people complaining about it have no business complaining about high gas prices. Me, I'm people. I'm annoyed by gas prices, though I'm more annoyed that when the media is talking about high gas prices, they don't adequately explain why gas prices are so high. Spoiler alert, price gouging. High gas prices are an inconvenience to me, but I also have some self-awareness. I drive an $100,000 car. I also don't drive that much. Hell, I don't even drive to work. So a full tank of gas, no bullshit, easily might last me two weeks, if not longer. Unfortunately, there are other high-profile folks who aren't as self-aware. Because I see a whole lot of celebrities, a whole lot of people with a whole lot of money posting memes about high gas prices or posting pictures of prices at different gas stations. And yes, I know it's just jokes, but rich people or well-off people or just people in general who are mildly inconvenienced by this should not be complaining about high gas prices. Shaq and Kenny Smith were complaining about high gas prices on Inside the NBA on TNT. The bit was definitely funny, but I don't want to think about how many cars these two probably have between them. If you're driving a car that costs six figures, your ass can be out here talking about you getting broken at the pump. Because there are people who really are wondering if they have enough money to get to work because of how high these gas prices are. Or they're having to make tough decisions in some areas of their lives because they can't afford to pay for gas. They have the right to complain. Yes, the price of gas is too damn high. But some of us got to check our financial privilege. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fire. Fuck it, I'm bothered. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. 
Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute, I was born to get it.